This is an AMI podcast. Keep the conversation going off the air. Your voice matters. Email feedback at AMI.ca or connect with us on Twitter at AMI-audio and let us know what you think about our programming. I'm Jovita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. In the United States, in the lead-up to an election, the presidential debates are a highlight of the campaign. A series of debates between presidential nominees allows candidates to speak directly to the voters. Americans get an unvarnished glimpse into the candidates, their platforms, competence, likability, and how well they perform under pressure. Presidential debates in America have a long and rich and, dare I say, colorful history. Debates are viewed by large numbers of people, but the impact of these debates on political engagement and voter preferences are in fact hotly contested. Despite having its critics and detractors, it's clear that presidential debates have a place in American politics and political life. Today, we discuss U.S. presidential debates. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joita Gupta and it's great to be with you here again today. Just as we kick things off on the program, I want to remind you that if you'd like to keep up with our latest coverage around COVID-19, you can visit ami.ca forward slash COVID-19. On that webpage, you'll find the latest segments dealing with the pandemic from all of our daily shows, including this one. So if you heard something on Now with Dave Brown or Kelly and Company, as well as on The Pulse, you'd be able to find it all in one place. That's ami.ca forward slash COVID-19, as long as it pertains to the pandemic. So we all tuned into, or most of us tuned into the Trump versus Biden debate a few weeks ago now, and I think it really piqued interest in the U.S. presidential debate. But I wanted to dig a bit deeper and find out about the history. I wanted to learn about some of those moments in political history that swirl around the presidential debate and also hear from my guest about who actually thought won that debate because a lot of eyebrows shot up. So without further ado, my guest today is Professor Mitchell McKinney, who teaches at the Department of Communication at the University of Missouri. Professor McKinney's research interests include uh, presidential debates, political campaigns, and civic engagement. Professor McKinney, welcome to The Pulse. It's really great to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm very excited to be with you. So let's just go back to the first Biden-Trump debate. Um, a lot of political pundits, the talking heads, were in unanimous in saying, quote, unquote, it's the worst debate ever. Now, you study these things. In your learned opinion, was it the worst debate in history? Well, a debate, you know, in many ways. Now, certainly uh, one of the ways that we've measured a debate in terms of analyzed is how conflictual is a debate, how how much attack. Uh, we, we also look at the uh, the amount of interruptions as a measure of candidates uh, engaging in clash. Uh, uh, actually, four years ago, when uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, debated Hillary Clinton, 
Uh, that debate series uh, became, until uh, about a week ago, uh, became the most attack-oriented, conflictual presidential debates in the history of presidential debates from the time that we began in 1960 with John Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Uh, much of that attack four years ago, uh, uh, interruptions, we even created a new, a new category of type of attack because we usually will analyze the attack is it an issue attack, an attack on opponent's issue, or is it a character or a personal attack? Four years ago, we created a new category of name-calling or taunting, name-calling one's opponent. Now, much of that attack work four years ago, interruption, was from Donald Trump directed toward Hillary Clinton. Until about a week, seven, eight days ago, when we had the first Trump-Biden debate, that debate became the most uh, attack-oriented, uh, uh, conflictual, uh, the greatest number of interruptions uh, of one's opponent. Again, much of that was predominantly was from Donald Trump directed toward Joe Biden. Uh, this time around. So I think in that regard, if you say, was this the worst, uh, it certainly was the most conflictual, attack-oriented, greatest interruption, uh, really keeping one's opponent from ability to respond to questions. Uh, mm -hmm. And so in that regard, I think what we saw, it, w it really was an outlier and a, a not, uh, I think, a useful or effective debate uh, for, for, for the public. Mm -hmm. In fact, Trump went so far as interrupting the moderator on many occasions during that debate. Did Trump's, and I'm, and I'm confident in calling this a strategy, did Trump's strategy of name, name calling and interruptions, do you think help him with, solidify his base or may it actually have been um, a hindrance to Trump at that last debate? Well, Right, right. No, I agree. I do think that, that this was a, a very deliberate strategy on the part of the president. Um, uh, actually, he forecast for us going into the debate for, for weeks, actually months, he's been attacking uh, his opponent, Joe Biden, in terms of Biden's age, uh, although Biden is only about three or so years older than, than Donald Trump. Uh, Biden's abilities, his cognitive abilities, there, 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 were, there were suggestions of dementia, all sorts of things being mm -hmm. raised by the Trump campaign uh, to try to cast Biden in a very negative light in terms of his ability and specifically on the debate stage. Donald Trump told us that Biden wouldn't be able to stand up to him. He wouldn't be able to last the 90 minutes. Uh, and there was even suggestion that he would need uh, uh, drug enhancing uh, uh, drugs to enhance his performance. Biden would. So this strategy then that we saw, I think, very much designed to try to overwhelm, uh, uh, befuddle, to throw Biden off his game every time Biden uh, attempted to deliver a response. Uh, the president was interjecting, was attacking, was yelling, was interrupting. And as you say, even so much to the point where the debate moderator, uh, Chris Wallace, the journalist in charge of the debate, on multiple occasions tried to rein in the president, really uh, a bickering uh, at one point, asked, you know, demanding that the president shut up. Uh, uh, and so uh, uh, that strategy uh, it did not. I think most assessments did not seem to work. It, it, it. Although it, it, it was irritating to Joe Biden, and he expressed his irritation. He expressed, you know, on several occasions, uh, uh, anger toward the president. 
uh, it did not seem to create the kind of gas or oops moment, if you will, uh, to to really call into question Joe Biden's ability, yet the, uh, maintain that strategy for 90 minutes. Uh, he didn't deviate any at all. Even, I think, after the first segment or the first one, I think, half hour or so to see, okay, this isn't working. What should I go to next? I think that level of of uh, really the debate commission, the group that plans the debates, um, mm-hmm. concerned about the rule breaking uh, that, as, as Chris Wallace said to the president on multiple occasions, uh, that, that he agreed to these rules that each candidate would have their allotted time to speak without interruption, that those rules really didn't mean anything, didn't mean much in terms to the president. Uh, and so to the point where that strategy employed for 90 minutes became such – created such chaos on the debate stage that the debate commission is now – they have not yet announced. Uh, you know, We have several other things that we're dealing with in terms of our president and our campaign and our presidential debates. Will the next presidential debate take place? Uh, that the debate commission is considering putting in place new structures such as to turn off one's mic. Uh, so they would not be heard if they're going to engage in such behaviors as we saw uh, Donald Trump uh, on the debate stage in that first debate. So so I think and for all of those reasons, that it was a design strategy. It did not seem to, it did not work. It only created chaos. And now we'll see uh, our debate commission if they if they then now will put in place new structures to try to prevent this from happening. And and one reason why I think that they may be concerned is because voted four years ago the record that was set in terms of the most conflictual debates until this first debate, the three debate series between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton four mm-hmm. years ago became more aggressive and conflict oriented as those debates went on. And so I think mm-hmm. the debate commission is concerned about that this time. You know, one of the things that people like to say is that political discourse has become a lot more fractured. The people's political views have become far more polarized than they were four or five or six years ago. Do you think the debates and the tone of the debates, the decline in collegiality, reflects that fractured political discourse, that polarization of views? Or is it that what we see on the debate stage is in fact meant to engender that divisive feeling amongst voters? Well, well, certainly um, we've been you know, the media, our political consultants, really a lot of, of within our society and culture have noted and, and, and we point to many examples of the uh, the divided nation, the polarized citizenry, red, blue, red states, blue states. We hear this from the president a great deal. And, and what, what I as it pertains to to debate and debate dialogue and what happened uh, in this first presidential debate, that was, as I said, a continuation, an intensification of what we saw four years ago, again, driven largely by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I would caution that we we were careful because there's now, certainly after that first presidential debate in this series, a lot of calls that we just simply throw the debates out, that we don't need them, that look what happened, it wasn't useful for, for voters, uh, it, it, it was chaos. I would caution that we not... Uh, we not take an example of one candidate, in this case, one president's strategy, uh, to engage in such um, uh, attack 
hyperbolic uh, and, and, and in many cases invective in terms of name calling. Um, we what what I predicted before the debate in some ways happened. Now it happened in and and it, it, it happened in in a greater magnitude than I I had thought that would take place. That mm. this president is known for his um, his hyperbolic claims, his his aggressiveness, his bombast, his his taunting of opponents, his name calling. Right, right. This 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 is his style. This is his communication style uh, traditionally uh, as he's governed as he ran four years ago and and so it was a continuation now uh, your question about polarization this this president too has has used as strategy uh, what I sometimes refer to as a divide and conquer strategy of trying to mm-hmm. hit group against group uh, 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 he talks about Democrat states. He talks about, uh, you know, oh, the, the 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 pandemic, for example. He claims is worse in some states, or or uh, 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 he talks about law and order and and protests and violence. Well, that only happens in Democrat states or or blue states. And so again, other examples of intensifying a division among the American uh, citizenry among the public. As strategy, that's the divide and conquer strategy, right? If I can divide folks up, then maybe I can take my half, or even if it's less than half, and 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 I'll be able to stay in power. Uh, we saw that on the debate stage again. As, as this discussion pertains to debates, I don't think we should allow uh, one strategy by a particular political leader. To call into question our our institute in this case an inst- a campaign communication institution we've had debates they've served I think in many ways we could talk about that the mm-hmm. American public very well rather than oh let's look what happened with this particular leader uh, political presidential candidate and therefore we need to throw it away uh, and as you say. Um, uh, this 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 very I think clear strategy of division. Uh, leading to greater uh, uh, polarization among our citizenry. Again, you know, the other message, the opposite message from Joe Biden is one very much of of, of attempting to unite and of unification, uh, even to the point where some of Biden's uh, uh, own supporters, you know, the base, the progressive or liberal wing of the Democratic Party suggested, oh, you know, uh, uh, Vice President Biden, you're going too far in appealing to Republicans or reaching out to what we call, you know, the other side. Uh, so, so we do have this competing message of division versus a, a, a message of unification, and and in some ways, those messages are put to a test, and we'll see what happens on election day. My name is Joita Gupta, and with me is Professor Mitchell McKinney from the University of Missouri, and we're talking about the history and importance of U.S. presidential debates. One of the things you said a few minutes ago is that the debate not a few outliers notwithstanding, is a useful institution. And part of your work, Professor McKinney, looks at civic engagement amongst voters. So for voters who engage, uh, who uh, tend to watch these debates, are they likely to be more involved after watching the debates with the political process? Or is it only those people who are politically involved to begin with who tend to watch the debates? 
Well, well, certainly we know a large segment of, of those that come to a debate, of the viewing audience of a debate, are partisans, are committed. They're, they're tuning in to cheer on their candidate. Uh, yet uh, we've also seen where debates have the ability because of their reach. Uh, again, we set new viewing records four years ago. We were in the 84 or so million viewers in the first presidential debate. Now, the numbers dropped a bit in the first uh, Biden-Trump debate. Uh, yet when we're in that range, you know, that, that's what we generally refer to as Super Bowl range in terms mm-hmm. of, of viewers. And again, that's for a political um, a moment, a political event uh, that illustrates, I think, a first point in terms of the, the engagement of uh, televised presidential debates to engage the public. You know, much of our, our political campaigning, whether it's the conventions, uh, the conventions, the party conventions, the televised party conventions were a bit different this time around. But still, over the past several decades, there's an example of where the viewership has just waned a great deal, uh, really dropping off. Uh, uh, other forms of, of, of campaign communication in terms of the candidates' rallies and other moments of where, you know, the citizens really have, have tuned out, have lost interest, but not so the debate. And I think that's because driven largely where uh, citizens see this as a moment, the only time in the long presidential campaign, and we have very long presidential campaigns mm-hmm. here in the U.S., uh, the, the only time when the candidates come together side by side, face to face, that as citizens view that as a useful moment to really compare and size up the candidates. So now, again, this large audience, most our research shows 90, 90, 90 to 95% are, are committed partisans. They're tuning in. So very little, few minds are changed. However, uh, we've seen consistently that the debates, because of their reach, they do draw a small slice of, of individuals who haven't been following politics closely. They haven't been following the race. The, these uncommitted, uh, they, they really know perhaps a little about the candidate. Of that small slice, and that's usually about 5% or so, mm-hmm. uh, anywhere from 2 to 3 to 4% of that group come away from watching a debate saying, okay, I'm, I now know who I'm going to vote for. I'm, I'm now, I've now selected a candidate. And debate watchers are more likely to turn out and vote. They are more engaged in the, in the remainder of the campaign. So in, in a close race, and again, you know, the mm-hmm. polls, for example, in the current race have really fluctuated. But when you drill down to the battleground states, and we know here with our electoral college in the U.S. where elections are won and lost in certain in a handful of states, those mm-hmm. polls show a, a, a tighter race. So debate's ability to even affect 2 3 4% uh, can be consequential in the outcome of elections. So for all of those reasons, again, notwithstanding the chaos that we saw in the first uh, uh, Trump-Biden debate, but for all of the reasons I've just cited, I think we, we generally see debates as useful to, to voters. What about uh, the debaters themselves, the two candidates? If one is a sitting president, an incumbent, you've been around this particular rodeo once before. Is it useful? Mm. Is it fair to say that, you know, you're coming into this at a, a not just a bit of an advantage, I would suspect at a distinct advantage? Do incumbents consistently outperform? 
Well, we, we've seen some examples of incumbent presidents while they've been in office for four years and they get to the debate stage in, in, in their reelection effort, uh, some, somewhat faltering, uh, particularly in their first debate. That happened with Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, the great mm-hmm. communicator president, and his first debate reelection. That happened even with Barack Obama most recently in his first debate. Uh, with Mitt Romney when 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 Obama was standing for re-election. Now again, this Trump debate is something of an outlier in his re-election. What I would point to, in terms of the faltering of incumbent presidents, are they at an advantage or a disadvantage? I think we might point to somewhat of an of a disadvantage for an incumbent president because when one is standing for re-election and particularly on the debate stage with their opponent. The prime, typically the primary uh, proposition in that debate, no matter the issues discussed, the questions asked, but the primary proposition is, should, does this individual deserve four more years? Should they be mm-hmm. returned to office? That's what's debated in a very broad or general sense with an incumbent president. Now, I think that, too, might help us see, understand uh, the Donald Trump strategy in his first debate with Joe Biden of creating chaos, confusion, the dramatics that were, were brought to the debate stage. As, as Again, we said earlier, a strategy to try to befuddle or to overwhelm Joe Biden to see if that could somehow illustrate his not being fit uh, for office to serve as president, but also mm-hmm. a strategy to to keep the focus away from prosecuting, if you will, the Trump uh, record the past four years. Uh, particularly as it relates to perhaps the pandemic or other issues that are top of mind to voters. Uh, so, so in some ways, incumbent presidents, they typically are, le- are more reluctant to debate their opponent because, again, they are in office. They know that, that, that their record will be prosecuted, will be examined. Uh, and, and yet when the incumbent presidents falter in that first debate, they usually will rebound a- a- in subsequent debates. Just a few minutes ago, you brought up that famous Nixon-Kennedy debate, um, and this might just be urban myth or urban legend, but the story goes, and I'm sure you've heard it, that Nixon, in fact, won the debate all over the radio because people just, you know, they just heard the two candidates. But uh, Kennedy had looked a lot more polished. He had makeup on. Nixon didn't look so good. And he ended up l- losing the televised debate. First of all, is, it, uh, is that a true story? Is that just an urban myth? Well, there, there, there's a bit of an urban myth to that, and, and I say a, a bit because there is very slight evidence in terms of empirical evidence, polling data and other evidence, because at the time, you know, polling, uh, the, the, the technology in terms of, well, who were these voters listening on the radio? Well, they were from more rural areas, which tended to be Republican or Nixon areas. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, who were these individuals? You know, why, yet, yet I would say slight urban myth because there is greater evidence, though, uh, in terms of debate watchers, those viewing the debates, and also analysts at the time, that John Kennedy turned in a superior debate performance than Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was off his game, uh, was 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 somewhat ill suited to that televised debate. Uh, uh, he himself, you know, admitted that he, he did not perform nearly as well as John Kennedy. That was a very close election. Uh, Richard Nixon pointed to those debates as one of the prime reasons that, that he was not successful in that election and that Kennedy was due to Kennedy's uh, 
uh, uh, superior debate performance, even to the point where Richard Nixon, who was a candidate in 1968 and then was the incumbent president in 1972, you know, once we started debates in the U.S. in 1960, they went away for a while, and we didn't Mm -hmm. resume them until 1976, largely because of Richard Nixon refused to ever again debate uh, his opponent based on what happened to him in 1960. Mm-hmm. I wish we had more time to dwell into the history of it, but just in, in the minutes that we have left, maybe in about two minutes or so, why do these debates matter? Why do they continue to matter? And why, in your opinion, will they continue to matter down the road? Right. Well, uh, uh, as earlier, uh, certainly they can be consequential uh, if the context of the race, the campaign, they can persuade enough voters, affect enough voters of those undecided voters. So that, that, that's one way I think that they matter. But yet, I think even in a larger way, and from a from a, 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 a from a perspective of of democracy, that we expect our leaders to come before the people and and appeal for their support for their vote, and we see that happen in a debate. Uh, that's that's what is going on in the debate. The two leaders stand side in a two, our two party system. The two leaders stand side by side the nominees and appeal to the public for their support. And voters point to the debate moment as where they feel that they're getting the most authentic candidate. Uh, the least scripted. The candidates are not in control of this moment. It's not like their party rallies. It's not like their mm-hmm. their convention speeches. It's not like their paid political advertisements. The candidates don't know what questions are going to be put to them. And we size up the individual based on how they respond and how they interact with one another. And so for those reasons, I think voters uh, generally see the debate moment as, as, as a useful moment in, in the campaign. Professor McKinney, thank you so much for being with us today. We will keep watching the debates, and I thank you for taking us through some of the background to the presidential debates. Thanks a lot for being on the program. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That was Professor Mitchell McKinney from the University of Missouri, and he joined us today to talk all things U.S. presidential debates. We managed to take a little trip down memory lane, and we also spent a good chunk of time talking about the most recent Trump-Biden presidential debate. We find out from Professor McKinney about his research and why he continues to think that the institution of the U.S. presidential debate is relevant and should continue down the road. If you missed any of my conversation, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. I like to bring this conversation home. I am a person with a disability, and that's where my interest in politics, be it U.S. politics or Canadian politics, comes from. The decisions that get made in the White House or here in in, in Ottawa in, on Parliament Hill, those decisions have far-reaching consequences for all of our lives as people with disabilities. So I would encourage you, even if you're not likely to volunteer for someone's political campaign, even if you're not likely to run for political office, although if you wanted to do that, more power to you, I would encourage you to stay informed and be aware of political candidates and parties and platforms. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'll have a few more remarks there. I'd like to thank Professor Mitchell McKinney for being on the program today. 
The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. And any feedback can be sent over Twitter at AMI-audio is our Twitter handle. You can use the hashtag PulseAMI. If you want to write to me directly, you can find me at Chuita Gupta. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts. CA.